Project A Podcast. Welcome to the Project A Podcast. This week we have an awesome guest, Paul Murphy of Lightspeed Venture Partners, uh, who's joining us uh, today to chat all things uh, venture investing uh, and venture in Europe. Uh, Paul, thank you for, for, for joining us. Yeah, of course. This is one of the first things I've done uh, in, my, in my new gig, so I'm happy to join. Uh, and for those who don't know, Paul has an incredible background uh, that spans multiple countries, multiple organizations, both as an operator, investor. Um, I don't think I could really do justice to all of those. I mean, Paul, I'd love to hand over to you to give our listeners a bit of an insight into your journey to venture uh, and how you ended up at Lightspeed kind of going from the start. Yeah, I'll do it quick. I mean, it, I think at the high level, it turns out as you get older, you tend to do more things. So it's um, probably more about age than anything else. But I started, you know, when I left university, I went to Microsoft as an engineer, ended up staying there for about eight years, worked on, you know, various tech and product roles, ended up on the strategy side. Um, I then left and uh, ended up working, you know, at a similar uh, time to you at, at Betaworks in New York where I was on the kind of company creation side. So I helped start about a dozen companies at Betaworks um, as a, as a co-founder. Some of them became successful uh, and others quickly died and we don't speak of them, but the, the two probably most well-known are Giphy and Dots. Um, and I, I would say actually that was the time uh, when Giphy was, was raising their, uh, their first round of funding that was actually the first time that I got connected to Lightspeed. Lightspeed and General Catalyst led um, their first institutional round of funding. And Alex Chung's amazing founder uh, was running the business. I was an advisor at that point, uh, but I got to see Lightspeed and, and General Catalyst just, you know, just got to see what a great investor was like. Um, anyway, but then I put my head down. I was focused on running Dots, the other company that was out of that cohort, Game Studio, ran that for a couple of years. Um, ultimately for a number of reasons, decided to move, uh, back to London where my wife is from. And, um, at that point I, I stepped out of dots, uh, as the CEO and became one of the board members, my co-founder, Patrick continued to run the company much more successfully than I did. Uh, he ultimately helped, uh, the business sell to take two, a great exit, um, the same year that Facebook bought Giphy. This was a very exciting year. Um, and then I joined Northstone as an investor in early stage companies um, out of London. Spent three years doing that. Uh, I would say more I invested. I had no kind of formal training as an investor. Um, so I, I invested more as a, as a founder and someone that loves product and I think has a, a pretty good read on you know, great founders. Um, and that led to some really incredible companies uh, that I was able to be part of, like um, like Hopin, Game Studio Clang, uh, Team 30 Madison out of New York, just new healthcare, Tier out of um, Germany, one of the sort of sister companies to the business that, that you invested in. Um, and then basically last, uh, actually it was last year, well, sorry, the beginning of this year, um, there was a, a company that I was looking at that we haven't, Neither Northstone or Lightspeed announced the funding yet, but a company that I was looking at, Lightspeed ended up looking at it as well. 
um, it sort of rekindled the connection that I had with them for many years prior. Um, and it was actually during that process that, um, you know, they approached me and I, you know, flirted with the idea of, of helping Lightspeed kind of grow and launch Europe um, and ultimately made the very hard decision to leave Northstone and do that. Um, and then spent uh, six months kind of respecting, giving some space between jobs uh, and, uh, and started a company um, during that time uh, called Catch. Uh, and about a week ago, started at Lightspeed. So that's my not so short history. <laughs> nice, congrats! And and for those who don't know, Paul is actually one of the only people I know that said if Trump got nominated, he would move from the U.S. and actually did it. So clearly, a a man of his his word. Um, th there's a few things there that I'd love to kind of get into. Um, you you kind of uh, you're in this space where you're both you know, an investor predominantly, but I think you kind of identify yourself as, as a company builder and operator. Um, maybe going back to that prior experience at Betaworks, I mean, it'd be great to get an insight into, you know, what that program was like, what what happened there with kind of building those companies from the ground up, and maybe how that's influenced your, you know, investing style and, and operating. Yeah, I mean, for those that haven't been through Betaworks, um, as you know, I mean, it's such an incredible place with so many really amazing, creative, technical souls that kind of walk through those doors. And uh, I think the first time I went in there, um, I was just going for a brown bag session on a some sort of topic, some cerebral topic that John was excited about. Um, and I just got hooked. Um, I just got hooked with the energy. And so I ended up spending as much time there as I could and ultimately ended up joining and you know, basically helped run the studio where we were responsible for building new uh, companies and products. And I think the, you know, what what my observation was is there's a whole lot of great technologists and creatives that just want to see things, you know, products or industries in a in a better place than they are today. There's a, a better way to do things. Um, they weren't trying to reverse engineer an exit or think about how they could create enough FOMO to get a big sort of Series A round. They just wanted to build great products. And out of that came some really authentically great companies. And I think that's, um, you know, that is what I got hooked on. And that's what I look for today. I, I tend to very quickly disengage when I see you know, a founder going after you know, an exit in three years because they've figured out there's a company like this in the US and they can build the European version of it. Um, you know, that there has to be much more deep, deeper purpose behind it for me. And that not only just to kind of get me excited, but also I think it just creates better companies. Um, so that was my observation. I was just so lucky to sort of sit alongside dozens of really incredible uh, founders and product, product builders at, at Betaworks. And then out of that came some really cool companies. And if you could maybe just give us an insight on a, a couple of things. I mean, you, you kind of mentioned you Betaworks had gathered this really sort of unique set of individuals. Um, it'd be great to hear about that. And maybe second to that, I guess, kind of the culture of Betaworks and building those companies at, at that really early stage and, and maybe how you think about culture generally. Yeah, so I think the, the culture at Betaworks was, um, you know, put your slide deck, uh, your presentation away and build something. 
Um, so everything was around building. Even the CFO, you know, was tinkering with code um, all the time. So I think that that is a culture of building. I think that was core, and I think that's really powerful. Um, that was backed up by demo sessions that we did every week. Um, you know, the idea of it doesn't matter if you're building, you know, an update to the the website or something more you know, geeky, like a, a new command line script, you know, whatever it is, there was this culture of get up and show the rest of the crew what you made that week. Um, and I think it just, it created this really kind of nice energy um, around the studio where people just felt like they were constantly building and they were building because they wanted to, not because it was necessarily had to be done in the, the sprint schedule. Um, and then, yeah, I would say outside of that, you know, as we started forming what became companies, there was this notion of, you know, well, actually we used to say, fuck it, ship it. Um, and I think Dig actually came up with that first, but it, it sort of went across the whole studio. Um, it, nothing's ever going to be perfect. It's never going to be done. And we probably got it wrong anyway. So just put it out there, let the world play with it. Let's learn and see what they're doing with that product. And then with that input and that data, let's then go refine and make adjustments. So you didn't see too many teams at Betaworks kind of put their head down for six or 12 months and then say, okay, let's release something. It was usually a few months, let's put it out there to at least a, an initial beta group or broader um, and then react uh, when we see people using it. Paul, you, you've worked in a number of different tech scenes globally, you know, from, from Europe now to New York in what was sort of comparatively, uh, let's say it's, it's early days, um, India and further afield. Uh, give us a bit of an insight into how you think about sort of how global tech culture has evolved. Yeah, well, I, so I moved to London in 2005 with Microsoft and my job was to, at the time I was part of a group that went out and tried to get as many uh, software companies to use the Microsoft stack as possible. So I, I got to see what was here. And I would say at that time, it was just, you know, big kind of consulting led infrastructure projects for like the NHS and other large organizations. Um, there was a, a small startup scene, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything what I was used to in kind of the Seattle, San Francisco area. Um, I then went to India in 2007 and there was actually a pretty vibrant uh, kind of venture capital and startup ecosystem that was, I think, a little bit ahead of its time. Uh, a lot of capital went in and I don't think it came out. Um, but the, the cool thing is there was such incredible talent um, that they just sort of just kept at it. And some of the firms, including Lightspeed, um, just kept investing in the region and ultimately it's paid massive dividends. Um, so I think for me coming back to London three and a half years ago, uh, it felt like a totally different place. It felt like New York when I first moved there in 2010, 2011, in that you had, you know, a lot of the best people had come out of the big companies and were just building stuff. And there was this amazing seed investment community backing them. Um, that was starting to happen in 2010, 2011 in New York. It's obviously, well past that stage now in London or across Europe. Um, so I would say now, kind of to go back to your question, it feels like I could go to Berlin or East London or Stockholm 
um, everyone's kind of, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's just not that much of a difference. Um, it's amazing talent all over Europe now, uh, which I think creates tons of opportunities for people. And we'd love to hear more about, I guess, your experience of, of what it was like to be in, in New York around that time, what the scene was like, you know, what, what kind of people were building products, what kind of investors were there. Uh, obviously, more recently, you know, New York uh, has been on an absolute tear. I think historically, there's always been a question as to whether New York would be kind of this evolving ecosystem. I think it's proven that it, it has developed as that. Um, would love to hear, you know, what it was like to be on the ground, what it was like to to interact with a bunch of the the players back then, and, and maybe what the comparables might be to Europe or London today. Yeah, I think when it, well, I think the first thing is looking back at that time, you didn't have WeWork, you didn't have a concept of a kind of shared workspace that was just getting started. Green Desk, I think, right next to where I used to live in Dumbo, um, and then you know you had. Amazon, but it wasn't anywhere near the stage of what the kind of AWS business is today, let alone, you know, Microsoft didn't have the Azure offering, at least at scale and all these other things. So at, at that time, you know, one of the offerings at Betaworks was we give you a space to work. We give you servers that you can use. You know, some of these things that we take for granted today um, really mattered back then. So you could actually get started with a fairly low Kind of overhead and and it was relatively easy um so i think that you know but then obviously in the years that followed everything started changing um and things became you know much more accessible and distributed so what really felt like a unique hub in kind of that you know meatpacking district soho um nomad that that, that area um you know i think over the last five years quickly or yeah probably more than like eight years it's quickly kind of broadened and now you've got great companies in Hoboken and, and other parts of Jersey and all across the city, upstate New York now. Um, but back then it just felt like there was a few places you could go to find great talent and resources and Betaworks is one of them. So it's just, you know, I just remember going through those doors and you'd see, you know, everyone from like a disgruntled uh, sort of engineer from Goldman Sachs that wanted to just build something else uh, through to like, you know, some of the most famous kind of tech, uh, you know, people out there that were just coming to see what was happening. So it was a pretty unique, unique place. And I think um, uh, I would guess one of the magical things about that time in New York and maybe this point in Europe's own trajectory is just how accessible people are. You know, there's this view that the ecosystem is, is growing. It feels very kind of positive sum. To some extent, maybe a lot of people are accessible that maybe wouldn't be accessible in SF or otherwise. Uh, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's that's accurate? Yeah, I think my initial reaction when I was spending time in both New York and San Francisco or Bay Area was that New York felt like, you know, this is kind of early 2010. You know, 2010, 2011, 2012, it felt like everyone was sort of helping each other out in New York. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't kind of as cutthroat as I felt like the West Coast was at that time, where people were pulling talent left and right. There was very, you know, engineers didn't have any loyalty. You know, they were kind of going from, you know, company to company um, to get a, you know, a year or two of investing and then jump to the next one. And 
Whereas it felt like New York, there was it was just a bit different. Everyone was trying to help help each other out, and therefore was super accessible. Um, now I think that's leveled off, both in New York and in San Francisco. I think it's all at a probably a more healthy, sustainable place. But I think in Europe, you know, one of the things I love when I came over here is it felt like it was that environment of of New York, you know, everyone helping each other out. But you had that replicated across dozens of startup hubs across Europe. So, you know, Berlin, Barcelona, mentioned Stockholm already, uh, Paris. And so it's, there's like just lots of really great people that have had some really incredible experiences um, that are all trying to help each other out and give each other advice, um, as well as the kind of investor community that I think is generally speaking there to do that as well. Super interesting. And, and how do you think about that? You know, You've come from some, let's say, relatively dense ecosystems to Europe where things are, to some extent, decentralized. You know, London's a hub, Berlin's a hub, Stockholm's a hub. Um, but there are also emerging places like, you know, Paris, Barcelona that you mentioned, etc. How, how do you feel, uh, you know, that maybe compares to to somewhere that's that's a bit denser where people are maybe a bit more localized? I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan of remote, remote culture and, you know, decentralization generally, uh, with startups. I mean, the company I'd mentioned that I started, it's, you know, we've got people in India, Moldova, um, here in London, New York and LA. So it's, it, the upside is you get, you know, the best talent, the most relevant talent, uh, for any, any given company. Um, but I, I don't think that come you know that comes with some real real heavy trade offs you know I, I do think that you the in person culture is priceless and remote teams have to really figure out how to how to make that happen and so I think the same is true when you're looking for mentorship and guidance you know the great thing about New York um, is at least back you know, maybe ten years ago is within 20 minutes, you could get anywhere you need to be in the city and you could have that in-person session. Um, it's a little bit, you know, more fragmented and decentralized now. So maybe that's not entirely true uh, today, but generally speaking, you can still get around. And I think it's broadly true as well in the Bay Area. Um, so that's maybe a, a, bit, a bit of a challenge. But I think aside from that, I think you've got you know, really good ecosystems that have formed in those hubs that you mentioned and many more. I mean, I think every aspiring city kind of wants to, to grow has some sort of startup community uh, that's been built around it. So I think generally speaking, that's all upside, but obviously people are plugging into uh, more kind of remote and virtual sessions to get that mentoring that they maybe otherwise would have gotten in person. Feels like a lot of startups at the moment, or certainly the ones that have been created kind of post-COVID are working on that remote work unlock. And, and I suspect there's kind of a big unlock to be had if you can if you can set culture and set kind of a working cadence accurately. Um, certainly, I've had a lot of people argue that, you know, Europe is better positioned than anywhere else because to some extent, you know, uh, a lot of the teams have been working uh, in that mode even pre-COVID. So uh, we'll, it will definitely be interesting to see how that, that pans out. Um, I'd love to move on to... Um, you know, your role as an investor, um, you know, we went through your background, which is, you know, whilst it's been concentrated in technology, uh, it's pretty diverse from kind of an operating standpoint and an investing standpoint. Um, 
when I look at some of the companies that you've invested in, whether it's Hopin, which is kind of online events, uh, Tier, which are scooters, uh, gaming companies, it's safe to say that the companies are pretty diverse. Uh, you know, I certainly couldn't pick out sort of a, a commonality between them. We'd love to get in your own words, maybe, you know, what your investing philosophy is, you know, how you think about investing in specific teams and, and founders and what you look for. Yep. So the three companies that have had the quickest success that I've invested in, you mentioned Hopin, Tier, and the other one is 30 Madison. So you've got you know, what basically looks like a consumer mobility company, um, a healthcare company, and um, it's kind of a SaaS business, uh, which is growing into a more of an enterprise SaaS business. Um, so it's, it, is, it is a little bit tricky to find that thread. I would say the reason that all three of those and the others I've invested in really caught my attention wasn't because I'm some sector expert. I mean, I've, I've worked in consumer and enterprise before, Lots of smarter people out there know these industries much better than I do. What I fall in love with, going back to my time as a founder myself, was people that have like true purpose. They're really going after something that they believe should be better. Um, they are deeply technical, um, so they they really can understand the product that they're going to try to build at a level that I feel like is is unique to the point where they have some some insights that can't be sort of generally uh, gathered, um, and they, you know, I would say if it's op if it's an operational business, there's some kind of operational strength there that connects back to that. So that was true uh, in all three of those. And we take Hopin as an example. Johnny literally couldn't leave the house because of a medical condition, and he's like, "Why can I not go to tech events without leaving my house? It doesn't make any sense." Um, there was never kind of better purpose that I, I had ever come across and, and you can see the company that's built today. Um, so I, I think, and you know, Lawrence at Tier, he, before Tier, he spent almost a decade trying to find out how to extend the life of consumer electronics because it was so wasteful to throw these things away every two or three years, um, which is a core pillar for, for his business now. Um, so yeah, so that that's kind of what I what I've looked to, and I, I I love going early stage. So I, you know, am not phased by, you know, pre product. Um, you know, obviously it may not be a full check from, uh, from from Lightspeed or, uh, you know, previously at Northstone, but it you know I I get I love to get engaged at that early stage, and when it gets later stage, you know, growth territory, and it's really about, you know, the really understanding the intricacies of a market or a sector, then that's, there's other people that I would lean on that are going to be better equipped to find out how you should invest in a, you know, five, $6 billion company. Super interesting. And I mean, you guess you talk about a, a few things there, you know, to some extent, um, finding kind of authentic founders that have uh, a strong narrative as well, that are maybe more, more product focused. Um, you, I guess you've been fortunate enough to work with a handful of companies that have found product market fit, which to, to most people is this kind of very elusive term. And I think a lot of people kind of define it as you know it when you have it. Um, but from what I understand, you know, certainly Hopin, Giphy, Dots as well, found really strong traction early on. Um, would love to get your view on on what those 
experiences were like and maybe how that informs the way that you think about, you know, early products that, that you look at and the founders building them? Yeah. So I think the first thing I'd say is most founders that I talk to that say they have product market fit don't have product market fit. I think that it's, it's way, way overly, you know, overly used. Um, and I'm not saying that to discourage people. It's actually the opposite. I think the worst thing you could do is take something that, you know, people don't really resonate with, doesn't really resonate with the problems that they have, and then try to scale that up. That's the quickest way to waste your time and your investor's capital. Um, so in my experience, and, and I'm saying that out of true personal experience, I there was companies that I remember building that I was like, this makes perfect sense. There are a set of people that are using it. Um, we should just you know, finish the product and start marketing it. I know that they'll come. And I ran some of those experiments and, you know, years and millions of capital uh, were wasted. So I think then a contrast, you mentioned Dots, Giphy, Hopin, you know, those companies were, like you said, when you know, you know, it's so overwhelmingly obvious when you have product market fit. So it's almost like don't look too hard. If it's not obvious, it's just not there yet. You might be close, but you're just not there yet. And that's that's like my my core learning, especially you know when I'm investing at seed, just trying to really give the founders permission. Like it's okay that that thing that you thought was going to be the the answer isn't the answer, but keep you know experiment around the fringes, and you'll probably find it. And I mean, three incredible journeys. Um, you know, as you mentioned before. Uh, Giphy sold to Facebook. Uh, Dots, similarly, you know, you ran that company and sold it. Hopin is on uh, just an insane trajectory in terms of its growth from from uh, everything that, that people I'm sure have read. Uh, how does that kind of shape you investing in companies that, that don't find product market fit so quickly? Maybe, you know, you, you kind of need to work with the founders to iterate on product, to iterate on sort of who the initial customer is. Um, you know, I guess the benefit of seeing these things scale so quickly uh, is maybe you come, you become a bit used to to that mode. Yeah, I think that as happy as I am for all the founders that have, you know, had huge up rounds three months after their previous round, and then six months after that, um, I do think that it's it's sending the wrong messages to founders. You don't have to build a great, great companies are very rarely built in a, a year or two or three or four, you know, it's usually a decade plus and that is the norm. That's what, when I sign up to, to back a founder, that's what I'm signing up for. I'm signing up for working with them for 10 years. That means like 10 years, they can call me on Saturday night at 10 o'clock and like, I will hear their problems. Um, and, and so I have no expectations that anyone's going to, it magically figure it out in a, f a few months and kind of quickly scale. And I, I think that a lot of founders I've spoken to really are beating themselves up because they haven't, they haven't had that huge up round of fi financing, which is, you know, the most vanity of vanity metrics out there. It means nothing. Um, and so, you know, that, that's just not, yeah, it's not, it's not a measure of success. So I think that the, um, to, to answer your question, if you haven't kind of figured it out yet, uh, you know, that's not, that's probably not what we invested. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't invest under the assumption that you would have figured it out right away. We invested because we love you as founders. 
we think the market you're going after is incredibly inefficient. And your vision seems like a really smart way to improve it. Um, and that's, you know, from there, it's a, it's a launch point. And then you start building products until you figure it out. Super interesting. I guess one thing that, that's worth picking out there is, you know, the, the current market environment, I guess, across all stages of technology investing from, you know, pre-seed to, to public equities um, is heated and it has been heated sort of uh, relatively soon uh, after the start of, of COVID. Would absolutely love to hear, you know, maybe some of the learnings that you have from, uh, you know, what for most has been a, a very difficult period, but what for, I guess, a lot of people within uh, early stage technology uh, have seen as sort of super strong growth. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, it is a hard time because one of the things I observed, I would say, sorry, I think it's a hard time for founders because one of the things I observed was that it's, it's rough as a founder when things aren't going right or as you expect, but it's actually still pretty tough. It's very tough, maybe even more difficult when things are going well. Then you get a different type of problem. And you also, you know, the greed comes out from everyone that's associated with the business, from employees to some investors. You have to manage that uh, as well as trying to continue the expectations that people have of your company continuing to grow. So I think, although there's probably never been a, a better time to start a company and raise money than right now as a founder, I also think that you have tremendously difficult pressures put on you as a founder. Um, and so I, I just think that's, that's kind of, it's just worth noting. That said, we have had a once in a generation accelerant to the world that we live in with, with tech. I mean, we'll, we'll never see, um, I don't think I will ever see in my lifetime another accelerant like COVID for technology. We've had, you know, a decade or more of transformation happen in months or years. So it's a great time to, to build it, to build a company. Um, but I think it's, even though it's a great time, it's like, it's still going to be very stressful for founders. And of course you have to, you know, outside of the day job, you've got your own families and, you know, personal health to, to kind of reckon with and, and think about how you want to manage that, which I think is, is also very difficult for most people. And, and to your point, I mean, what, what do you think are sort of the pr predominant changes that COVID has accelerated within technology? Well, I think there's a, there's so many inefficient parts of commerce that I think have just, the, the inefficiencies have become so obvious now, everything from, you know, the kind of archaic practice of handing out a business card through to like, you know, having to sign a bill at a restaurant or a um, checkout, um, you know, paying cash even. I mean, there's just, there's just, I can't think of a single, um, a single, you know, the legal industry, the construction industry, all of these things have just become digital by necessity during the pandemic. And people have realized how much more efficient it is. So they'll remain digital and post pandemic. Um, but I don't think I can, I can't isolate it to one or two areas. It's just every, you know, everywhere we, we look around us. And that's why I think one of the reasons that the venture capital world has gone crazy um, is crazy in a good way is because everything's on the table now. 
you know, it's, it could be a, a furniture business. It could be, you know, a really kind of gnarly infrastructure business. Um, but it's literally everything's being changed right now. So there's a lot of opportunity out there for VCs that are you know, going after. It seems like COVID's kind of pulled the future forward and just expanded kind of the TAM across every industry. Um, I mean, it, it, it's certainly been a, uh, an incredible year in terms of seeing, you know, I think from, from our standpoint as well, uh, in Europe, especially a bunch of really awesome early stage founders, many of which are repeat founders, uh, you know, going after these big market opportunities. Um, one thing that I've sort of in the last year been, been trying to think of more is, uh, you know, from my own standpoint, what kind of learnings sort of this this period has crystallized for me i think for me and maybe kind of talking to your point one of them has been sort of historically maybe underestimating the market size of a, a lot of these companies um you've had the benefit of of the last six months sort of being let's say a bit adjacent to the market you know you obviously just started at, at light speed um what have you been able to reflect on in that period of time. So, so Paul, do you maybe just want to share, um, you know, what you've been up to in the six months that you've had off? Yeah, well, the, there's a, an idea that I've had with one of my former colleagues, um, Alessandra Knight, went back when we worked together at Dots, which was all around how we can try to get our, our team more time back. As we started scaling Dots, what we found is we had more meetings and more people wanted to be in more meetings because they wanted to know what was going on. At the same time, they wanted time to go do their work and write code or do whatever they need to do in their in their jobs. Um, so we instituted a no meetings Friday kind of policy, which I think a lot of companies have some version of that now. Um, and it became this like magical day where, at least for us, you could still have meetings kind of serendipitously in the office. But if you wanted to put your head down and get work done, you could do that as well. Um, so what happened is literally the, the moment I, I resigned from North Zone, um, you know, I called Ali and said, hey, we've been talking about this thing. I'm going to have six months or so where I'm not going to be doing any investments. What do you think about trying to build it? And so we basically started building. We tried, started trying to productize that concept. How can we take that No Meetings Friday into a product that could be used throughout you know, the, the week um, and, and the weekends. Um, so we did that. We, we spun up a team very quickly uh, and put out an alpha. We started using it on the team and it turns out that it was, it was kind of working for us. Um, so we decided, you know what, I think there's something here. Let's take the next step. Let's form the company. And then we, we, we did that. So that's kind of, that's been my you know, 110% of my time during those six months was working on Catch, which is the startup. For anyone that would like to check that out, gocatch.com. Uh, if you're fed up of your current calendar and scheduling, uh, you'll be in for a, a considerably improved experience. Would love to hear, you know, what time away from, you know, early stage investing, um, how that's managed. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, I'd love to hear how being out of early stage venture for the last six months has allowed you to maybe crystallize some learnings. Yeah, it's certainly something 
that I've thought a lot about. I've had the time uh, to do that. I actually was sort of half joking with some people and saying, I think it was maybe even a good time to not be in the market because there's been, you know, a lot happening. I do think there's some really interesting companies that have been potentially overfunded um, or funded a bit too quickly. And the, the danger there isn't that, I don't think they're, they're worthy of it, but the danger I see is that um, as a founder, I think you can learn the wrong lessons when, you know, an abundance of capital is thrown at you uh, on the back of a vision that you haven't executed yet. So it, it can be a bit, it can be a bit dangerous and I, um, maybe it gives you more time, but ultimately that's not what we're in this for. We're in this for, you know, big outcomes. And, um, so anyway, so I think that that discipline has been lost a little bit in some parts of the market on both sides of the table, founders and investors. Um, for me, you know, my, my kind of reflection was not to get caught up in the hype cycles. You know, I think that founders, um, Really, the founders I've spoken to in the three years I've been doing this, and my my own experience as a founder is founders really pick the individual investor. Um, I mean, the best founders do that anyway. They, they they don't just pick the brand or the best term sheet. They pick that individual investor. Um, so you know, I'm all for fast processes. Um, I'm in one right now already, but uh, you know, I think you still want to ultimately make sure that you're really excited about working with that founder for the next 10 years um, and vice versa. And, uh, you know, it would, it would really be unfortunate to kind of, you know, make an investment because you feel like everyone else is chasing that company. So there must be something special, but you and the founder, for whatever reason, just don't have that connection um, and chemistry. So that's, that's the, the main thing I, I've had, you know, been very fortunate with my kind of startups having exited and, and, and so on. Um, I'm in this stage of my career because I want to work with great people. Uh, I want to like hanging out with them. I want to debate with them. Uh, I want them to accept my pushback and push back on me and, you know, for that to be a productive kind of friendly, fun relationship. Nice. And to your point, I guess, you know, what we've seen over the last year is, you know, an acceleration of so many rounds, which I guess is another way of saying kind of, the noise to signal ratio has has increased dramatically, um, which which is always a difficult environment to kind of remain lucid uh, and kind of uh, you know actually stick to your guns in terms of what you know and and what drives you. Um, it'd be great to hear about you know your new role. So as far as I understand, this is day one at Lightspeed. Um, would love to get an understanding of. Uh, Actually, let me rephrase that. Um, uh, so, uh, Paul, so as we understand, this is day one at Lightspeed for you. Uh, just talk to us about Lightspeed generally and, you know, you joining the team here in London. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a really special place. Um, it had to be for me to consider, you know, even think about um, moving away from the amazing people at North Zone, uh, and their success. So I, I think Lightspeed is is one of the. I, I think of Lightspeed as one of the top franchises globally. Uh, one of the few that's truly global. I have um, 
you know, a team in the U.S. Obviously, which is where the bulk of the investors are, but they also are in Israel, in India, uh, Southeast Asia, um, as well as China and Europe. Remarkably, uh, they've been covering from the U.S. and with there's a partner on the ground here, um, Bridis. Um, so they've actually made a number of really amazing investments already, but they never had Lightspeed. Never had a full presence here. There was never a full team here. Um, so I think for for me, the opportunity was to help one of the best venture brands in the world um, turn Europe into a core market, where we're looking at every early stage deal, every deal that you would invest in. You know, we would be looking at for, for follow on rounds. Um, so what, you know, what I'll be doing and what we'll read us and I, and the, and the team, uh, which includes Nicole Quinn, who's, um, in the U S but spends considerable time here, um, and, and others is we'll be, uh, trying to meet as many great founders as possible, as early as possible. Um, to do that, we'll be recruiting. So we'll be, you know, building up the team to be of comparable size to the other, um, top tier funds in Europe. And then just meeting all the founders, um, and we have a a muscle, a growth muscle, which is really cool because we can stay relevant across your entire journey, all the way up to IPO. Um, and you know, but what we'll try to do is is capture as many great founders and companies into our net, whether we actually invest or just stay friendly with them as early as possible. And give us an insight into, I guess, Lightspeed's general decision to be more present in Europe. You know, as far as I understand, uh, a storied venture firm uh, has invested in uh, a bunch of the uh, sort of best known uh, technology companies globally, also has a presence in in India, Israel, China, if I'm correct. Uh, Why Europe? Why now? So it it was interesting because the... um... Lightspeed has sort of always been invested in Europe. They've been doing it for over 10 years now. Um, it's been thematic investing. And some, to some extent, there's also been kind of growth investing here um, because they, you know, the, the, the investors primarily in the U.S. You know, are known for certain sectors or certain expertise. And so they do get calls um, from you know, local founders or, or European funds. Um, really, I think now it was a recognition that there are more early stage opportunities than, you know, we could handle as a U.S., primarily U.S. fund. Um, there are so many great companies and Europe is growing so fast as a startup ecosystem that it fully justifies having, you know, a full-fledged team here uh, to meet founders, at, at, you know, in all markets as early as possible. So I think it's just a, it's just a capacity kind of question. We're investing out of the same fund. Um, so it's going to be the same. It's a $4 billion fund that's broken up into early stage investments, growth investments, and then kind of late stage growth investments. Um, so there's no restrictions on how much capital we can deploy or, or quotas and how you know minimums we need to apply. Uh, we'll use the same investment committee process that we use for the U.S. funds. So the founders that we invest in will have kind of, you know, met the test or, or, you know, at least uh, spoken to our U.S. investment team as well. And we'll be looking at them alongside the best invested investment opportunities in the U.S. Um, so it'll be a, a really high bar that I'm 
confident a ton of European founders are going to are going to meet. And I guess you know this probably speaks to a trend that we've seen accelerate over the last few years, which is U.S. venture investors being more present in Europe. Um, I think most VCs across the continent have, uh, to some extent, been wary of this. Um, just an insight in terms of how you see that. I guess we've seen a bunch of other sort of very well-known uh, US funds, uh, you know, uh, land in London and, and Europe more broadly. How do you see that as kind of an emerging trend? And maybe what's the secret source of, of US venture investors in Europe that's that's causing so much chatter within the ecosystem? I think that, so the first thing I would say is I do feel like there is more, there is plenty of opportunity. There's plenty of opportunity for all of the European investment firms, as well as those in the US that want to invest in the Europe. There's just so much good stuff happening that I don't have any anxiety about being able to like find our deals and, and elbow our way in as needed. I think it's more around fit. And I think founders will pick, you know, you, you don't raise once, you raise five, six, seven, ten times. Um, so I think it's about finding the right stage to get the right investor in. Um, so that's, to me, the, the signal that we're sending to the market is not that we're here. We've been here. What we're send, sending to the market is we're here and we're ready to invest early. And that's, that's a, a relatively new thing for us to do at scale. Um, it's where my background comes from. It's also the people that we'll be bringing onto the team. That's, that's where a lot of their background is. Um, so I think that's, you know, at the heart, at the core of it, that's kind of what we're, we're trying to do. I don't think there's really as, as incredible as I think the investors are, you know, across all the top tier funds in the U S I don't think there's something that they figured out that European VCs haven't. Um, I think the best European VCs would be the best investors in the U S as well and vice versa. It's just that the, you know, the startup ecosystem was much more mature, much earlier. I mean, the best founders in Europe used to move to Silicon Valley uh, when they did their Series A. That was kind of the, the norm. Now they stay here. So I think that's that's what's really what's happening. Nice. Awesome. Uh, so for everyone listening, uh, please feel free to, to contact Paul if you're a, an early stage founder that's building uh, an awesome company in Europe. Um, nice. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Awesome, man. I think we're... Thanks, uh, dude. We're, we're, we're near enough done. That was great. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks, guys.